You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, greetings, fellow bipeds, and welcome to the Managing Leadership Anxiety podcast. Last week, I mentioned that we would have an exciting announcement, and today I am thrilled to announce that Managing Leadership Anxiety is joining forces and partnering with the Missio Alliance. You're probably already familiar with the Missio Alliance. It's a wonderful collaborative network of writers and thinkers and practitioners and seminaries and organizations and churches, all trying to engage the deeper transforming power of the gospel and helping faith thinkers and faith leaders to uh, apply that transforming power of the gospel in an ever-changing and rapidly changing culture. I've personally been a great beneficiary of the Missio Alliance for several years, so it's just a real honor to partner and be now one of the offerings, the podcast offerings on the Missio Alliance uh, network. There's several great podcasts, by the way, on Missio. I'd encourage you to check out the others like Monday Morning Pastor and Seminary Dropout and others. Now, if you're new to us, if maybe this is your first episode, all you need to know is that managing leadership anxiety helps you notice and name what's going on under the surface in you so that you can be less infected by it and more able to be present to people and to God. But not only that, I also equip you to notice the way anxiety shows up in groups, whether it's a family or a team or an organization, so that you can build cultural health, both emotional health and spiritual health. Most of the time I have on a special guest, someone who's interesting to me and I ask them questions about their life, but no matter what they're on to talk about, I put every guest through my now infamous gauntlet of anxiety questions so that hopefully you can benefit from some of their vulnerability and honesty. Today's guest, I think we're in for a great treat. Today's guest is Kosti Hinn. And you might be familiar with that last name, Hinn. Kosti is the nephew of Benny Hinn, the famous prosperity gospel preacher. Seven years ago, Kosti disavowed all teaching of the prosperity gospel. And I began by just asking him to share his story and his journey and some of the early childhood stories and what made him come out of that movement. Yeah, I grew up in the prosperity gospel, kind of the center of it. Uh, My last name is Hinn, obviously synonymous with my uncle, who's Benny Hinn, and a very famous televangelist and prosperity preacher and and what have you. And my father as well, a pastor and prosperity preacher, and uh, two other uncles who, one of them went down that road further than the other one, and then another one more of a local church guy. And so, the spectrum is is broad in our family, but the focus for many, many years was doing ministry so that we could make money, and it was a business, and that was the approach. And so, uh, that's where I come from. And over the years, I had worked for my uncle, I had traveled the world with family, my dad, everybody, and it was like the Hinn family business. So, everybody was involved at some level, and <clears throat> I've often described the way I grew up as a, a mixture between the royal family and the mafia, kind of a hybrid, the the wealth and lavishness of the royal family, and then the uh, gag order, if you will, the loyalty of the mafia. You'd never turn your back on family. You never speak against one of your own, even if there's deception happening, or even if there is, uh, you know, even exploitation or abuses of any kind, You you don't go against family. And so that's the way I was trained and that was ingrained in my mind. And then over the years, 
as I would say the outside world begin to attack or assault our beliefs and our lifestyle, I would see those things and opt for what I had been taught. I would lean into my training, which was to say anytime we were attacked or opposed, that was the devil coming against us. So uh, news media would release a story and they would unpack things and investigators and then other denominations. And uh, we had our papers revoked from the assemblies of God. And so uh, there were even Pentecostals and charismatics who said, nope, that's too far. You, you can't do that. That's not a, a good way to do ministry. And so there was that. And then there was, of course, the more conservative denominations like the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans. And we called those the dead churches. You know, those were the people that they, they didn't have the whole Holy Spirit. And of course, we thought they're going to attack us because they're just dead and they don't have the power. And they're threatened by us. And so I was trained that way to view any type of questioning, any uh, attack on what we were teaching. I was to take it personal as an assault from the devil trying to thwart our ministry. And I never questioned anything. Some of the various quote unquote gag orders that were used were we would say, touch not the Lord's anointed. And that meant you cannot speak against, speak about, or question a anointed leader. And so you never questioned, even if you had thoughts or doubts or you saw some things you didn't question. And so I grew up that way. Eventually, I worked with my uncle. I was 19, 20 years old and traveled the world. The lifestyle is everything you'd see on the Travel Channel, flying on Gulfstream jets, best hotels in the world, best restaurants, shopping sprees, you know, Monte Carlo, Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, just the lifestyle of the rich and famous and all of it on donations. And we believe that God was blessing us because we were offering people hope and healing. And then one day uh, I began to have various experiences in my life and questions would arise and doubts would creep in. And I would quickly push them away because I thought, Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm going against the, the, the grain here. God's going to judge me. I'm going to get struck dead. Even this is not good. I can't question. And so different things would happen. And then I eventually played baseball at a, an American college, Dallas Baptist University in Texas, and had a coach there who began to plant seeds in my life about the sovereignty of God and about the truth. And that I would call it a crack in the dam of my theology. And then I met a gal who's now my wife and she was very meek and humble and quiet and was very different than me. I drove a Hummer and was very flashy and big watches and big lifestyle. And she drove a little Toyota Yaris and was working at a restaurant to put herself through college. And so we couldn't be more opposite. And she began to just ask me questions. She never attacked my family, but it made me think for the first time differently. And Doubts crept in and I began to see things from a different perspective and my life began to shift. And now I would quantify it saying, you know, change in pace, a change in place equals change in perspective. And my place changed. I began to be at a different area in where I lived and where I was doing a life of sorts. And I was at a different pace. I no longer ran with my family. I was, I met a gal, I was with different friends and suddenly my perspective began to change as I began to be around different people and learn different things and ask questions for the first time. Lo and behold, I end up at a church that uh, didn't really do a, a ton of background. They didn't really care that I was a hen. <laughs> it was a, it was a, it's a church plant that was more of an attractional kind of seeker 
driven model. We were looking for the unchurched. We were going after people who, uh, for all intents and purposes, had never really come into contact with the church. And so, uh, of course, no one was really worried about my background. I was whatever cool back then. I'm not cool anymore. I'm old. I'm a dad. But (laughs) for whatever reason, they said, hey, you know, you're a young guy. Come do youth with us. Do student ministry. And so, I started there. One day, I, I get assigned a sermon and... I'm to preach John 5, 1 through 17, the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And I thought, I got this nailed. I'm a hen. You know, time to introduce what I know. I know healing. Here we go. And as I begin to study the passage, things stuck out that had never stuck out before. Jesus healed one man out of a multitude. He healed him immediately. And the man didn't even know who Jesus was. And I thought, what in the world is going on? So I was looking through the passage, asking questions of the text like we're supposed to. And then I was analyzing. I thought, well, Jesus, you only healed one. I mean, I, I've taught and believed that it is always your will to heal everybody. And if people don't get healed, it's their fault. They lack faith or they didn't give enough offering, what have you. Um, something's wrong with people if they're not getting healed. But Jesus healed one out of a multitude. Why, why didn't John record, you know, him just, doing a wholesale healing at the pool of Bethesda, he healed one. So there's some part. Yeah. Why not? There you go. And, and then John records, he healed the man immediately. So I remember thinking, well, that's interesting. And I don't know why I thought this, but certainly the Holy spirit working in my heart and no jacket, as you said, no music, no stadium, no fanfare, no offering, no anything, just, healing with power immediately. And I'm thinking that's real healing. Come on, there it is right there. And then um, the man goes off carrying his pallet. The Pharisees say, who told you you could pick up your pallet and walk? What do you, this is the Sabbath, man. You can't work. Yeah. You're breaking, breaking all the rules. the rules. And he says, uh, the man who healed me. And then John records because he, the man did not know who Jesus was. And that just blew my mind. How did he get healed if he didn't know who Jesus was? How did he have enough faith to get healed if he didn't know who Jesus was? So I grab a commentary and I begin reading. I'd never really gone through commentaries or looked at commentaries before. I begin reading one and the commentator explains that this is a beautiful picture of Christ's sovereignty and power in his healing ministry, that you can't box him in, you can't turn him into a formula, that today's modern faith healers are uh, totally false in comparison when weighed against Jesus's healing ministry. These guys who say, you know, oh, just believe or just give or just have faith. Jesus just went around and he moved in power and it was immediate power. That's real healing. And one of the commentators says, you know, this is the cruelest lie of faith healers today, that if people don't get healed, they're guilty of negative confession or unbelief. And Jesus is a sovereign healer. He heals in power with compassion and love. And I'm reading all this and I begin to cry. And I realized I was what was being described in the commentary. I was one of those who believed and taught You have to have enough faith. You got to be good enough. You got to do enough good works. You got to give enough offering. You got to follow the anointed leader and then God will do something for you. And so um, the scales fell from my eyes, literally in that moment. Um, I realized that so much of what I had taught and believed was actually error. And I repented of my sin. I told the Lord, I'm sorry for living and teaching a false gospel that I would vow and I vowed to him to preach the true gospel and that I'd be a faithful preacher and pastor of his people and of his word for the rest of my life. And uh, 
I went out and began to talk to my pastor at the time, who was the teaching pastor who had assigned me the text to preach. And um, he he was proud of me and excited. And then he said, all right, so uh, here's what we're going to do. You are now uh, not Pastor Costi. You are PIT, pastor in training. I felt like a pledge, you know, at a fraternity. It was like pledge in. And, he, and yeah. I began to go into training. I went to seminary. I took a step back from... Uh, you know, big leadership platform and ministry and, and pushing forward and all of that. And it became about being faithful. And I studied everything I ever believed. Uh, there were some things that uh, weren't weren't problematic. There, it's not like every day my uncle and my dad and all of us woke up and just preached heresy on everything. There were some things I knew I'd memorized scripture. I'd understood the basic tenets of the gospel, but it was gospel plus. And, and Jesus was more of a magic genie than anything. And so I had to relearn Christ as Lord and Savior, as the warrior king, as not just love, but truth, not just grace, but justice. Uh, you know, not just a free gift to heaven or a free ticket to heaven, but as one who paid the price for my sin and uh, covered me. So I, there was so much to relearn. And I love that. It was a great, great season and I'm still learning and growing and I want to never stop. So that was the transformation. And then some years later, uh, this was now just two years ago that I was asked to begin speaking on it, but this process began seven years ago. So if you can imagine uh, four to five years of just quiet learning, serving in my church. A couple years ago, Christianity Today um, asked me to write my testimony. It was interesting that I was a Bible church pastor uh, and I was a hen that people were kind of thinking, well, what, what, any relation to Benny Hinn? Yes. <laughs> no, no white jacket. No. <laughs> um, so all of that to say, I begin to share a little bit and then, all of this was happening locally already at our church. People were asking me questions. They were coming from uh, places of, of brokenness and broken faith. And uh, I would get the assignments often. Our teaching pastor would say, oh, you should probably talk to Costi. And so we were doing things in the local church first. And then a few of these larger platforms uh, asked if I would speak on it. And of course, then after, hey, would you write a book and whatnot? So the goal was never to become some itinerant speaker. I'm still not. I'm a local church pastor. The goal wasn't to be, you know, Mr. Podcast out there, you know, whatever, building my platform. The goal is, was, and still is faithfulness to the local church, building a legacy for the glory of God that centers on his word and the truth of the gospel. So that's where we are today and, and where I was. Yeah, Costi, it's such a remarkable story. Just listening to you now, um, and what's going off in my brain is is having read your story, um, the incredible journey. There's so many areas I want to explore with you because you talk about being in Lake yeah. Como and you know some of the most luxurious places. You talk about the masses of crowds that would show up for your uncle, and I believe you your job yeah. was one of the catches when people are slain in the spirit. You'd catch them, and to go from that point. And to be on this journey where you are now is one of the most honestly radical modern transformations. Um, so I've got a few themes I'd like to explore with you. The first theme I'd like to get your take on is just listening to you now. What struck me was this baseball coach, your fiance, who is obviously now your wife, and then this uh, local church pastor. 
they were all able to look past your name and your family reputation and see you as a human being worth uh, loving. That's fascinating to me. I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, each one was willing to tell me the hard truth, and but each one, uh, I have a term for it now that it's a negative term, but I call it drive-by evangelism. It's those people that, and drive-by discipleship too. It's those people that kind of run past you or drive past you and just launch a Bible at you and um, go here, you know, figure this out. You'll, you, you know, and if God loves you and he's sovereign, you'll get it. And, and you think that's not the way, yes, God is sovereign. And, and yes, you're not going to get anything unless God does a remarkable work in your heart and your mind. Absolutely. Everyone agrees on that. But the way that we approach people is very paramount to seeing fruit in their lives and all of that. And so there are people who just kind of think, well, go figure it out. And then they're a little aggressive and, and almost dismissive. And then there is another way to approach it, which is you can be sure about what you believe and secure in your own theology. And from that position of strength, offer or throw the rope to somebody who's drowning. And that's what was done to me is people from the stability of the shoreline, so to speak, throwing me the rope as I'm going down the whitewater rapids over the falls. You know, my belief systems are false. There's chaos um, theologically. It's it certainly, I'm, I'm not living out the agenda of God, no doubt. We all agree on that. It's, you know, it can be uncomfortable for people to think of that reality, but I believe that I was hellbound. I believe I was going away from God. And I believe I was leading people away from God into a life of materialism and a life that was centered on them. It was, it was all man-centered. It was not Christ-centered. My identity, my satisfaction, my contentment, everything was wrapped up in what I had, not who had me or who I had, Christ. And so, um, these people reached in and were never threatened by me. They were never aggressive, but they were clear. And the way that my pastor described it is a, a, a way that I operate in ministry now, or at least try to. I'm, I'm human. I fail sometimes, and I would say that I'm not perfect at it, but I want to be firm in my theology, which is firm in my God logic, right? My beliefs are not, I'm not moving. I'm not wavering in the wind of culture, but I'm flexible with people, firm in theology, flexible with people. And that's what was done to me is these guys and my wife, the, these people were firm in their convictions. They didn't compromise, but goodness, they were flexible with me and they walked with me. They let me ask questions and it wasn't as though they were trying to win the argument. They were trying to win my soul. Well, and when you talk about uh, firming convictions, I think naturally a leader will think about a pastor or someone with theological training. I don't know what kind of training your wife has had, but when she was your fiance, you wrote, it was very moving to me that you wrote that you you and your family were basically trying to get her spiritual enough so you could marry her, which in, in your background meant she had to speak in tongues. I was so struck by her ability to be honest and to keep earnestly being open and it not happening and and her just simply saying, this isn't working. And that was actually for you when some of the seeds of doubt were planted. Yeah, it, it was. You're absolutely right. There, she had, by the way, no theological training, no theological background. Her family was just generally speaking, not believers. They, they were not churched. They, she did not grow up going to church 
she did not, she did not go grow up going to church. Um, and so this was spirit filled, spirit led conviction. Um, she was, I believe, a, a converted young woman, very new in her faith. She had been going to a church locally and, and just wanted to learn more about God. That was what drew her. It was literally the, the effectual call, if you will, the, the move of God in her heart. Some people, they hear the gospel some, uh, from a, you know, a Billy Graham type evangelist. Other people hear it from a neighbor or friend. Other people are, are listening to a podcast or other people are laying up at night saying, I, I don't know why, but I think I need God. God, if you're real, will you help me? And then the Lord moves in their life. So different ways that people are drawn in and then come to faith. For my wife, it was going to school. She thought, I'm going to go to a Christian school where there's good nursing programs and, and all of that. And then she started to hear about this God. And she's like, I got to know more about him. I want to be in relationship with him. And then she meets, you know, crazy me and just thinks, this is like, no, this doesn't make sense. And then she would look at what the Bible said and she wouldn't see it all matching. And she would say, so you guys teach this. The Bible says this. Am I missing something? She would ask questions. And you know what's so interesting? <laughs> you know, I would often say, Yeah, you're actually missing a little bit. You know, let me help you. And I would I would veer her into what we believe, but it still wouldn't click for her. She'd think, but that's not what it literally says. Yeah, it doesn't fit. There's an no. incongruence. That's right. And so the yeah. Lord used that greatly uh, to help me begin to ask bigger questions. Yeah, the, the, that's that kind of leads us into the second theme that I find fascinating. I think for a lot of leaders, uh, and really honestly, Costi, just a lot of Christians, I think we still see doubt as a problem rather mm. than as an asset to our faith. Yep. Uh, my own personal conviction is that doubt and faith actually are cousins, and doubt is not the opposite of faith. Um, knowledge is the opposite of faith. In your case, doubt literally saved your faith. Yep. Doubt became, in many ways, the biggest gift. You you write about when the, the first seeds of doubt were planted, when you wanted to go heal a friend of yours from school, and one of your family members said, nope. Yeah. And you started to ask, why is it that we only heal people when they put money in an offering at a big extravaganza? Why can't we go one-on-one? -on -one? Yep. Tell us a bit about how doubt has been an asset for you. Yeah. Well, it has been the gateway to questions and questions aren't bad. In fact, I was, I was a bit shook up when the first time after my conversion, I was taught how to study the Bible. And one of the first things that a pastor told me was, Costi, open the text that you're going to preach. And the first thing you do do not go to commentaries. Do not go and look online at how some other guy preached it. Open the Bible and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you and to illuminate you, to open your eyes to the truth for the sake of his people and the glory of the Lord. And then go and look at the Bible and read it over and over and over, the text over and over and over. One, one pastor gave me a checklist and it, it, I had to read it 25 times. Hmm. And he said, and each time you read it, I want you to have a legal pad next to you and I want you to circle certain words and I want you to just make observations and ask questions of the Bible, of the text. And I thought, question the Bible? Like, what are you crazy? That's not, you can't question the God. You, what do you can't question the Bible? What do you mean? And he said, no, that's what I want you to do. And I want you to find holes 
I want you to look for, you know, Jesus, wait, why did you go there and not there? Why did you heal him, but not them? Wait, why did you tell him to pick up his pallet and walk if you knew it was Sabbath and he'd get in trouble with the Pharisees? When you ask questions, you start to then go have to find the answers and you see Jesus telling this man to pick up his pallet and walk, knowing he'd get in trouble with the Pharisees. Why? Because Jesus then teaches the Pharisees, hey, guess what? Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And guess what? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So, but I never would have come to that conclusion if I wouldn't have questioned Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Why are you, you're disrupting everything. Why? Keep the peace, bring everyone together. Be, be a unifier, you know, bring the Pharisees in and, and you start asking questions. So I was taught to ask questions then of, of, you know, pastors and preachers who say things and they make you go, hmm, that seems odd. Well, go read your Bible and ask questions. So I, it, you can look at it as concentric circles. You know, I'm asking questions of my own heart first in my own life in prayer. God, where are my weaknesses? Where am I sinning? Where are the things that I'm blind to? Do I have pride in my heart? Please help me. You know, that initial concentric circle, the core is you and God. And then from there, it's in your studies and in your leadership and beyond. We want to always be asking questions and looking at blind spots. So doubt is our friend. I doubt that I know everything. I doubt that I am a great leader. I doubt that I have no blind spots. And I doubt that uh, everything I believe is perfect. So I want to always ask questions. I think that's an incredible gift. I, I think what you just told us is a is a real gift to our listeners. And, and I'm so struck by you began the narrative and you've written about it extensively. This idea that you were raised in Equipod's royal family and mafia, <clears throat> loyalty, honor, d- let you not touch the Lord's anointed, all of that, those messages from your youngest years. And then the first seeds of doubt, as I listened to your story, they were generated by love. You loved your friend at school who was mm-hmm. sick. You loved this woman who's now your wife. But Costi, it must have taken an, an immense amount of courage in a culture of honor and shame and loyalty to begin to ask those first questions. Can you just give, give us a bit of insight into your mental health, you know, into your emotional health when you first started scratching at all that? Yeah, I'll give you both sides. So I come out of the gate and I come to the realization that what we were preaching and what I was preaching and what I was living and doing was was anti-God. It was against God. It was against the Bible and it was against the gospel, the true gospel and God's plan. So first things I realize is, okay, I'm on the wrong team here. <laughs> this is not, we're going the wrong direction. Yeah. So the 180, right? Metanoia is the Greek word for repentance. The real yeah. thing is I'm going south. Now I'm Changing going north. directions. Yeah. Yep. So I changed directions. And then of course I love my family and I'm going, I need to bring them with me. Like we all need to change. And so I kind of, let's say I was, you know, going south and now I'm going north. I, I stop for a second. I turn the other way and I kind of try to grab onto everybody and, and, and pull them with me. But this is where I, I went wrong. I learned some hard lessons. I call it cage stage. Okay. It's when you come into contact with truth and it's best that you be caged for a little while, lest, <laughs> lest you say something stupid that hurts somebody. Yeah. And, and cause issues in, in your immature zeal. 
zeal is good, but I was immature in the faith. Yeah, I was a baby Christian. Really good. So yeah. ca- I, I was in cage stage. That's what we call it. And I sat down with my family members and I began to unload. And I, I, they knew I loved them and they're my family. So I went right to, you know, to truth. <laughs> it was like truth and love. Well, I'm like, yeah, you already know I love you. Let me hit you with some hard truth. Yeah. And I unloaded and I, I told them, you know, you guys are false teachers and, and you're, you're wolves in sheep's clothing. And these descriptions of pastors here in First Timothy 3, you don't fit that. You're not a real pastor. We're preaching a false gospel. We're sending people to hell. And I'm just going off on them, Steve. And they get really upset and really offended yeah. and really hurt. Yeah. And now you could argue, right? Proverbs, uh, I think 27, verse 6, faith for the wounds of a friend, deceit for the kisses of an enemy. Uh, you could say real love, real friends, I'll tell you the hard truth and, and, and let you have it. Well, yes, to some degree. But also, the, it's not always what we say, it's how we say it. Yeah, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, our Lord, right? That's right. And so I'm coming in hot, I'm aggressive, I'm yelling at them and telling them all that they, and I'm fired up. And I needed to learn to calm down and I need to learn from uh, wiser, older men to do the whole, you know, confrontation thing, more like care fronting instead of confronting. Uh, mm. I'm going in, I'm saying, I love you. I tell you this in a spirit of love out of the desire of my heart that you would truly have what Christ desires for you and the gospel and all of this matters in eternity. Uh, and then I learned something very valuable as well. An older pastor said, Hey, do the HMU. I said, HMU. He said, yeah, help me understand, ask questions. Don't just come in like a wrecking ball, come in and say, so, so help me understand, you know, mom, you believe X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, you know, I was reading the other day and I read this and it seemed to be a little bit at odds with some of that, but how do you reconcile that? Have you ever thought through that and some of the questions that come up? I mean, do you ever even question anything or am I way off base here? It's questioning, questioning and bringing someone in to your heart and your mind and, and, and seeking to actually understand them that allows for those healthy discussions. Remember, that's not compromise. I never change my belief when I talk with a family member. I'm not being uh, a compromising guy when I'm nice. That sometimes is what our culture in, in the Christian world, we can be a little aggressive. We view being nice as being affirming or condoning. Instead of, I can look at you and say, hey, Steve, yeah, I, I think you're flat out wrong on that, brother. <laughs> sure do love you, though. You know, and people would say, well, what do you mean you love him? Well, he is wrong. You need to lay it in thick. You know, let Steve have it. But we can be nice while disagreeing still. We don't have to go to those extremes. And so a word on that, you know, from emotional health and emotional intelligence is I learned the hard way how to go from cage stage to you know, more of a care fronting approach where you're asking questions, you're loving people by telling them the truth, but you're not setting the city ablaze. You know, it's not a, yeah. a war. You're not burning a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fascinating, Kosti, because you are the, it sounds like you're the grateful beneficiary of a coach and a wife and yeah. a pastor who treated you exactly the way you're now challenging us to treat people, which is this kindness and the questioning 
You know, and and a couple of things come to mind just in reaction. You know, Scott McKnight, he's a great New Testament scholar. He says, people only change when they're on a quest or when they're in a crisis. Oh, that's good. And you are definitely on that yourself and your family may or may not be. Uh, The other one that comes to mind from family systems theory, which is obviously my wheelhouse, is Edwin Friedman. He says that um, uh, the colossal misunderstanding of our time is that insight works with people unmotivated to change. And uh, I I just love how the journey you've been on from that cage stage, I've never heard that. That's so good. (laughs) To uh, how do you, in a context of love for the people who raised you and love you, to be able to share your heart with them without bludgeoning. That's, um, I wish we had more time, but I want to get to this third theme because I think this is uh, one of the byproducts of your ministry. Like I'm always interested in the journey that God has people on and what's their unique contribution. I I do think uh, doubt as an asset is one of your many unique contributions. But when I first read your story, I, I was trying to examine my own heart and just really trying to listen to my own presumptions. I find that my faith in Christ grows when I notice the story I tell myself that isn't true. Or, and, and I think people like me who were never raised in a prosperity situation, I was raised outside the church. I think we can caricature the prosperity gospel as if we ourselves don't have some of it in us. Mm, yep. And I wonder if you might be the guide because you've had a foot in both camps I'm guessing you still see prosperity in some form in the everyday local church. That's a leading question, but how would you react to that? I I would affirm that. I would react by saying it's true. It's in every heart that is human. All of us have a proclivity to comfort. All of us have a proclivity to blessing. And then how many times do we say, you know, when we have a baby or we buy our first home or we get a promotion at work, what do we say? We say, God is so good. Oh, God is so good because he answered my prayer, because he increased my income, because he gave me a baby and grew our family and my marriage is healthy. Oh, God is so good. And then when things are bad, whether we admit it or not, or we don't, we don't say, well, God is bad, but we do in our hearts and our minds, if we're being really honest with ourselves, we begin to think, Lord, what did I do wrong? Yeah. Did I, am, did I, what did I do to deserve this? Did I, am I, did I, am I not giving enough? Am I not serving? Did I, did I forget to, to cut my check to the church last week? Did I not obey something? Why is God not blessing me? And that's the way that the prosperity gospel leaks in where we need to understand there's a, uh, <laughs> passage in James, James 1, 2 through 4, there's Romans 5. You just look at the New Testament and you can see trials are going to come. Suffering is inevitable. We're all going to go through something. We're not getting through this life unscathed and we have to live and preach our, our theology. And so that in and of itself is how I would give a, a kind of a broad picture of the way the prosperity gospel creeps in. We want, uh, you know, I'm in a, an American context. We want uh you know, the American dream 
And that's why the prosperity gospel works, to be honest, is because it appeals to the core desires of every human heart. Not all of the desires are wrong. It's not wrong. It's it's not wrong to want your child healed. It's not wrong to want to own a home and, and grow old, you know, putting the marks on the wall as your children grow. And, and, you know, it's not wrong to want to drive a nice or reliable vehicle. It's not wrong. Who, who wants to be broken down on the side of the road? Um, who wants holes in their shoes? Who wants to wear uh, clothing that is falling apart and and torn? No. Who wants to eat you know rice and beans every night uh, with ketchup on them like you're a, a poor starving college student forever? No one. So it, the prosperity gospel appeals to our uh, our core human desire to want yeah. to achieve. So we do have to be careful of associating everything that's happening in our life that is good with God and everything that's happening in our life that's bad with, you know, the devil and, and even defining good and bad. It, it can be good. God's definition of good is very different than ours. And even if we're in times of trial or pain, God, though he doesn't say, Hey, I'm going to punish my kids and just send you into endless pain. We do need to see he can bring purpose from our pain. Even if we don't understand why we're in, a season like that. Yeah. And so that's just a word on that to be thinking through. Yeah. I, um, I, I think uh, what we can often do to feel guilty, because I, I do think in, in the modern church, we like feeling guilty. It makes us feel like we can do something about our relationship with God. Yeah. I think what happens is we read like the book of Acts and we see these radical conversions and we then feel like, boy, ours wasn't much. Yeah. Uh, my argument has always been that let's take the apostle Paul, he, I think his conversion journey was actually shorter than ours. I believe, I'll say this, Costi, I think Paul's conversion journey was shorter than yours. Oh, yeah. Because Paul went from the sovereignty of God as expressed through the Torah, you know, the one the one God, uh, Yahweh, yep. who then reveals himself as the gracious God through the work and person of Jesus Christ, but still the sovereign. So Paul's journey went from the sovereign works-based understanding to the sovereign unconditional love and grace. Yeah. I think our our journey is from self, the sovereign of ourselves, Ooh, uh, yeah. to the sovereign of Jesus Christ. Yep. And you really are one of the most stark examples of being raised in luxury uh, and literally giving all of that up. Like the rich young ruler couldn't pull that off. Um, what kind of freedom have you found on the other side of, of that death? A lot. And it, it's, a, it's a theme in my ministry now. And in conversations, uh, we still talk about it in our own home, that uh, every day is a, is a good day to die. Now, that sounds morbid and ascetic almost, but hear me. No, it's amazing. Death, yeah. the, the death of self, okay? Yeah. The, the beginning of my life in Christ is the end of me. Uh, there are certain things that we talk about even now. And you know, every day, Steve, every day, there's a temptation, even on this side, kind of, I have my BC days before Christ and you know, the after death, the AD, the, even now there are, there are, uh, joys and there are comforts and there's rewards and there's, there's pleasures, if you will, on, on what I would call the good side. Now, I go to first Timothy six and I see Paul say that God has given us all things to enjoy there. We don't have to be ascetic in life. And now I've got the the poverty gospel is just as evil as the prosperity gospel. So it's not like that. However, what are you willing to lose is the question. My wife and Mm -hmm. I often are asking ourselves, even now, what are we willing to lose? 
and you, and the pride and entitlement says, well, haven't we lost enough? Haven't we given up already everything? We, 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 we walked away from that life to follow Christ. Yeah. You know, and there's this temptation to arrive there. We have another saying in our house, there's no there, there. Mm-hmm. You know, if I just get there, if I just get there, if I just do this, if I just publish a book, if I just have this many people at my church, if I just, um, you know, win that person, or if I just have that house or that car, or my kids can go to that school, or if my boss would just notice all that I do, we have these there's in our life. And we have to come to a place, and I think it happens every single day, where we die to ourselves and the desires that we have, and it's all about us. And we go, you know, there's no there, there. I'm just going to live today faithfully. I'm going to be willing to forsake all for the sake of Christ. And in that, whatever he does, whatever amazing things he does, I'm going to, he gets the credit for. If there's anything good in my life, it's from him. And I'm just going to live that today. And so, yeah, there has been uh, a death. There has been a lot of giving up. But I say this often is I think I got the best of, of it all because I gave up all that other stuff. I got Christ. I sleep better at night. I've got peace and joy. I've got all the things money can't buy. Um, it's not a perfect life. I don't have a perfect marriage. I don't have perfect. I'm not a perfect parent. And yet I could honestly say that my wife is my best friend and that my children are rejoicing in the Lord and that we're doing our best to model a life that puts Christ on uh, the pedestal that he belongs on and all things must fall and bow to him. That's the daily effort, if you will. That's the, that's the only works we can pull off in the, in the hen house. Everything, all, all else is a work of grace. Uh, It is, unfortunately, tragically, time for you to face my onslaught of anxiety questions. The gauntlet. Here we go. The gauntlet. The infamous gauntlet. Um, Okay. Question number one. I think a lot of faith leaders, because we're others focused, we often don't know when we are not well. I think we struggle to ask for help. When do you know that you're not well? When... I lose my passion for being around God's people when I am foggy brained and I don't have clarity in what I'm to do each day. And when my pastor brothers uh, who I have in my life and my wife look at me and say, you're not well. Okay. Uh, That leads to the second question. You've answered it, but maybe uh, the second question is who in your life knows you're not well before you know, maybe you could give us between your wife and your, your pastor friends, what do they tell you? Yeah. I think that right now in the season I'm in, I can sneak it past my wife a little bit for, I can get away with it for a week or two because we're busy. We've got three kids and a fourth on the way. Um, We'll, we'll go have date nights and go have fun and we have family time and that that seems to be a great deal of enjoyment and life can be busy. So it usually takes a week or two and my wife will find me out. But I've got a pastor friend here on our staff, uh, our senior executive pastor who 
is he sniffs this stuff out a mile away and a, a you know a month ahead he he just he's older he's been around he's a a wonderful counselor a guy who is a biblical uh biblically minded man and uh does a wonderful job and so he he sniffs it out and he'll call me in his office and say, how you doing? And he asks a lot of questions. And so there, there is a guy in my life who uh, has got radar for that, if you will. And I think every pastor needs guys like that around him. Very good. Um, give us a couple of leadership situations that generate anxiety for you. It doesn't have to be exhaustive, but just two or three types of situations w- that get you stirred up. Yeah. Uh, false accusations. Mm. Uh, gossip. And uh, mistreatment of of uh, of those who are weaker or new in the faith. Oh yeah, yeah. Not giving a rookie a chance to grow or yeah, yeah. Oh wow, I like that. Yeah, um, one of the most common sources, of course, for any leader, uh, sources of anxiety is criticism. But it's a broad topic, so you get to choose which three subtopics you want to play. All right. The first one is cumulative criticism. It's not that you're getting attacked. It's that you're getting attacked from all sides Mm. or you're in a heavy season of attack. The second one is secondhand criticism, which would normally be your wife in your case. You come home, you're worked up and you're telling her about something. You later go and resolve it with that person, but she never gets the resolution. So she has to deal with the impact of secondhand criticism. So cumulative criticism, secondhand criticism. The third one is, um, I, I need to get a better name for this one, Costi, but it's um, same meeting, different experience criticism. You're all in the meeting, but one of you is the target of the criticism and that person's getting quite hurt, but the rest of you aren't aware because you're not getting attacked. Oh. That's this the world's most complex question. Which one do you want to go with? Oh, um. Man, that that third one is. I'm gonna go there. The first Great. two, I yeah, are are just what they are. That third one, that third one irks me. It gets me going. Gets me thinking. Good. So I have to. What do I have to do? I have to comment on it. Yeah, give us your take or tell us a story. Whatever, whatever reaction you have. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. So I'm yeah at a church and in a meeting and um. There is a, a situation where I'm being attacked, and you, I, I can see it, hear it. It's passive aggressive. It's it's even direct. But um, so no one in the room was picking up on it. However, there's one. There was one pastor who could tell, and so he circled back after, um, and and I was just frustrated. I felt like I was on an island and no one could rescue me. And uh, so that pastor circled back and then we talked through it. And in the future, that never happened again. And I was blessed. Just like I said earlier, every pastor needs needs a pastor like the guy I have around me who yeah. can sniff that stuff out a mile away. Uh, every pastor needs that that protector. Every pastor, even every team needs the protector in the room who is acutely aware of of those subtle things. And that's the shepherd's heart that comes out of that individual. And so, yeah, I do remember a situation 
uh, in particular, I'm not going to name names or go too far on details, but uh, in the moment, nothing was said. And I, I literally felt crushed and, but, and it, what, why it got me and why it would, I think still be something that I would be sensitive to or aware of and think I want to deal with this is because it, you know, you watch movies and everybody knows the villain or the double agent, except the person who's in the situation. It's that it's that double agent where you're going, you're no one knows right now, but you're playing for the other team. You're being an antagonist. You're coming against me and no one in the room can tell. It's almost like, being trapped in a coma and you can feel the pain, but you can't move and signal anyone. Yeah. And that is a feeling of helplessness and um, that's claustrophobic. Oh, that's good. That's a, that's a golden answer. Great. Um, A piece of my work that actually you and I haven't uh, discussed yet is that anxiety is not only in us, but because it's in each individual, you get a group together and now anxiety is contagious. Ooh, yeah. So the theory of family systems theory is that anxiety is always contagious. People always catch it the way I catch a cold. And that the most anxious person in the room always has the most power mm. unless there's a non-anxious leader there. So one of the things I do is I train leaders how to notice anxiety. And one of the ways to notice it is when you see a group of people in a recurring pattern that's predictable. So an easy, low-hanging way to understand it would be you're in a staff meeting. It's always the same person that speaks up first. It's always the same person that never speaks unless they're spoken to. It's always the same people that have the meeting after the meeting. You know? Yeah. And you already know who these people are, even in your own church. As I mentioned, yeah. it, you've probably got names and you don't need to name names. But where have you seen recurring predictable patterns in a group of people? It can be a family. It can be a church. Yeah, I church um definitely staff meetings are a great place because i'm obviously in leadership and so uh you can see those patterns there and i think the the most powerful truth that i've learned and seen so not only knowledge but the experience is the the non-anxious leader in the room uh there was a book i uh, one of my early classes in seminary i took was uh conflict management in ministry (laughs) remarkable one of the first courses i ever took i thought it, it wasn't even so good. Yeah, it wasn't systematic theology. It wasn't uh, some you know course on Old Testament survey. Although those are all helpful, it was a book uh, in that course as well. Congregational leadership in anxious times by Steinke, and yes. that book transformed my life. I thought, whoa this is really important. And so you need the unanxious, non-anxious leader, uh, stable, secure. And back to kind of what helped with my conversion is people that were on the shoreline on stable ground, calmly and clearly throwing the rope and pulling me in as, and you could say the falls and the rapids for me was, you know, false gospels and all that. But for other people, uh, anxiety, uh, fear, uh, you know, insecurity, whatever that, that, that white water rapid picture is for you and you're going off the falls. We need stable, non-anxious people to throw the rope. And if no one in the room can throw the rope, we're all going over the falls together. So, yeah. yeah. Great. All right. The last question, my, my favorite question, John says that perfect love casts out all fear. And I believe that chronic anxiety and shame um, invade the space where we are aware of God's love. And so I think it's very hard 
to be anxious and to feel loved at the same time. Hmm. But John says that love actually displaces those things, which makes me think that one of the most important questions in the world is this. uh, When in your life do you feel most fully loved? Mm, What a great question. When do I feel most fully loved? When do you feel most fully loved? There's no wrong answer. It can be human or divine. Yeah, when... When my personal devotion, uh, or you could call them spiritual disciplines, but when when those are in order, this is going to sound at first very works-based, but stick with me. When my personal or spiritual disciplines are in order, I feel most loved. And here's why. Not because I'm doing anything that makes me earn God's love, but because I'm devoting to something. I'm... I'm I'm pouring out love and relationship with God. I'm reading his word and I'm soaking in what he has to say. I'm spending extensive time in prayer in in the quietness of my life and in my prayer closet. And I'm with God. I'm fellowshipping and communing with God. I'm, you know, spiritual disciplines also include active things. It's not always quiet, mystical in the prayer closet. It's also out, you know, evangelizing, discipling, loving my family. Those are all spiritual disciplines. Discipline can seem like a bad word, but it's a good word. It's it's yep. regimen. It's living what I say I believe. Steve, the the love of God overflows into my life when when I'm just following him and I'm with him and I'm loving and I'm doing what he loves. That's when I feel most loved and I feel closest to God. Of course, I know he's always there. I know he's near. I know he's in me. I know he's omnipresent. But if you want, if you will, the feeling of love comes when I am following the way Jesus would, would want me to live. Yeah. Beautiful. Costi, I've been looking forward to this uh, appointment for some time and um, I had high expectations and it still exceeded those. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for what you do and, and keep it up, Steve. God bless you, brother. Hi, friends. Here's the thing. I don't believe life change happens by reading a book or listening to a podcast. I think those are great entry tools, but if you want to experience profound transformation, you have to dialogue with people you trust. You have to test your assumptions about life and you have to bravely practice a new way of living. That's why in March 10th and 11th, 2020, right here in beautiful Colorado, I'm hosting a two-day facilitated experience to help you do exactly that. For two days, we'll go over all the major concepts in managing leadership anxiety. You'll be sitting at round tables with lots of discussion, lots of interaction time to give you the opportunity to not only learn some principles and techniques, but put them into practice right there and then. That's why we're calling it a facilitated experience, not a conference. Conferences are great, but you often just sit and listen. And of course, sometimes you grab a group of friends to talk it through with. But this whole two-day experience is designed to get you interacting early so you can go from being managed by anxiety to managing it. For more information on what we'll cover and for tickets, visit stevecusswords.com. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.